This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week is moving week for KOPN. We are starting the process of vacating our home of almost 50 years at 915 East Broadway and moving to our fully wheelchair accessible ground floor one story home on Bernadette. There is a lot to move and I am awed and full of gratitude to two of my fellow board members, Margo McMillan and Joy Rushing, plus the myriad of volunteers and programmers who have dedicated an inordinate amount of time to cataloguing and sorting and boxing KOPN's collection of music. Huge thanks to go to board president Linda Day, who has worked beyond tirelessly to find us a new home, and to the incredible talents and time of the KOPN staff, Sarah, Ali, and Dylan, who are moving mountains on a daily basis to make the move a reality. So this week, as it is all hands on deck, our arts chats are repeats and we're going to revisit an art show chat from April plus three of last week's theatre chats, one of which has some additional content that I didn't have time to include last week. So stay tuned and off we go. I have had my portrait painted twice. Neither time was it out of any sort of narcissistic desire to see myself immortalised in paint. In both cases, an artist asked if they could paint my portrait. And I have to confess, neither of the works are hanging on my wall. And in fact, when I showed them to one local portrait painter, I think her response was the stronger American version of Blimey. So I applaud all the people who agreed to be subjects for a fascinating art exhibit at the Montmini Gallery of the Boone County History and Culture Centre called For the Love of Locals. The exhibit is a collective display of 60 portraiture works by local artists Lisa Bartlett, Jane Mudd and Amy Stevenson, in which they explore their common appreciation for some of their many friends and acquaintances who are influential to Columbia's arts community. And I'm thrilled to have the chance to chat with the exhibition's curator, Audrey Flory, along with the three artists, Jane Mudd, Amy Stevenson and Lisa Bartlett. Hello, art ladies. Hello. Hello, Diana. Hello. I noticed that with the exception of Jane painting Lisa, there was a lack of you painting each other. Jane, I know you love painting portraits, but how do you feel about being painted? Well, it's fine. I've got a couple of great portraits Frank Stack did of me, and a few other artists have attempted to do me. I think it's great. I like to see what people see in my face. They're all different. Amy, has anyone ever painted your portrait? Would you be reticent or would it depend on the painter? Yes. uh, Joel Sager painted a portrait of me maybe a dozen years ago. It is not flattering, I must say, but it's a beautiful painting. (laughs) Uh, It's it's not very flattering and it's giant, um, but it kind of tickles me more than offends me. I I think it was an interesting experiment to have my portrait painted and I, I would do it again. 
Lisa, this is such a compelling show because for any of us involved in the arts, it's a room full of people we either know or know of. Tell me the origin story for the exhibit. Well, in 2016, I was honoured by getting chosen to um, have my artwork as the Fall Festival poster. And I had done a painting of a band and... um, at the party that they throw for you, which is amazing, it was at the Missouri Theater, and the band actually got to come and play for it. So it was kind of a win-win, and it was just um, an epiphany. Oh, wouldn't this be cool to do portraits of more musicians, which I always like to do anyway, and then have them play at a reception? And so here we are. Dream come true. Well, I mean, there are lots of wonderful portrait painters in Colombia. So, Lisa, what was it about Jane and Amy's work that you felt completed the triumvirate with your work? Well, I just think both of those artists are so amazing. And what is compelling about their artwork is they capture the essence of a person. And, you know, Jane painted my portrait probably back in, I don't know, 2012 or something like that and it was just amazing how she could capture my image she kind of captures a piece of your soul and Mm -hmm. I just love that and Amy is the same in a different sort of subtle very beautiful way of portraying her portraits and I don't know if they're I mean they are portraits but most of the time they're full length and just beautiful. Audrey, as the curator, talk to me about what your curator eye sees as you look around the gallery. Yeah, so this was a really fun project to be involved with. And just as an art lover, I have a love for portraiture in general. And so I wasn't too involved with the initial stages of this, but writing the opening panel, I was quite nervous to write it. But then it quickly became clear that these artists had a similar way of representing humans and creating a human connection. So while their styles are very different, they just have this very unique way, a very similar way of portraying human connection, whether that is intimate moments seen within a painting or moments that you can see between the viewer and the subject. When you say similar, what do you mean in this context? Yeah, so I think... When I say similar, I feel like I am coming from a point where I am discussing just this connection to each other. So I can see a connection that they have to one another, but also a connection to the community. Um, And that's what I really loved about this show. And I was really excited to be involved, especially after my involvement with Intertwined last year. It really just demonstrates uh, how vast and interconnected the arts community is and really just how supportive they are of one another. Um, So I think that's where some of those similarities come from. Lisa, story is a huge part of your work. And I always sense in your work the desire to capture not just a person, but the moment, the story and the energy of your subject. Tell me what it is about a person that you want to commit to canvas and how you build your portraits using collage and found objects. Yeah, I guess what I like to to capture is, especially with this, since they are all uh, musicians, I like to capture the the music within the 
the artwork. So if you're a jazz artist, I kind of like to get that spirit of jazz in there. Or if you're a blues musician, then, you know, I like to capture the bluesy kind of soulful look. And then if you cross genres, then, um, (laughs) you know, then I don't know what to do with you. But um, (laughs) so so that's one aspect of it. And sometimes I use collage and I like to do that to add interest and texture to a piece. And then other times uh, just paint and using color. I, I guess I use color as an expression and I use color as a form. So that's about it in a nutshell. Jane, I have admired your work for the best part of 20 years now, and I don't think there's anything that you cannot paint beautifully. But the works that I've always been most fascinated by are your portraits. Talk to me about sitting down in front of somebody with a paintbrush and and what it is that you want to capture about that person. Ultimately, the goal is to get the painting to look something like the sitter, right? I mean, that is one of the goals. The other goal, I think, is is to make a good painting and uh, and to capture some kind of the essence or characteristics or personality. But people shy away. It's like, can I do your portrait? And it's like, no, I don't want my portrait on the wall. And it, it's like, well, it's only a painting. It's a painting, you know, before anything else, really. I try to make it that way. So I think the trick is to not get too uh, too detailed and too photographic. And so when you work from life, it becomes uh, you're racing against time and you're working really fast and you're taking as many notes as you can in a certain amount of time. And um, I've typically done a, a lot of my portraits from life. For this particular series, I've done quite a few from my cell phone camera. I hate to admit, <laughs> but uh, Frank Sack, I, I love to quote that guy. He said, you know, it's okay to work from a photograph as long as you know how to work from life. And I feel like I've got enough hours in that, that uh, I can take a little photograph and, and make it look somewhat alive. I think that's another goal we all try to do is put some life and immediacy into the into the sitter. I remember years ago, you had set up your easel outside the Columbia Art League for, I think it was an outrageous Friday event. And in the space of 15 minutes, you painted an incredible portrait of somebody who just stopped by and sat there for you. And for me, what I was spellbound by was the multitude of colours that you used in their face. And I asked you, how do you see all those colours? And you replied, how do you not? <laughs> so I'll ask you again, how is it that your brain perceives so many more colors than my eyes can perceive in a person's face? Do I? <laughs> <laughs> to me, you do. <laughs> I uh, guess it's just uh, experience in time. I started out not, you know, I was probably uh, more concerned with brush stroke and surface activity, but I think... What I'm doing is I'm comparing one plane in the face or the tree or the apple to the one next to it. And is it lighter? Is it more intense? Is it warmer? Is it cooler? And uh, so I'll exaggerate it. Simple. It's real simple. (laughs) It's simple for you, Jane. (laughs) I have to agree with Diana that um, Jane sees just an amazing array of colors. She actually helped me rescue 
one of the paintings for this exhibit. I took it up to Orr Street and she helped point out, see how the nose has pinks here in a way that I, I couldn't really see. So Jane... Jane does have something special in that way. I, I agree with you, Diana. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. <laughs> I mean, although a portrait painting obviously centres the person, there's also the question of what surrounds them, and you each handle that pretty differently. Does anyone want to jump in and talk about their philosophy on how they deal with backdrops? What's behind the person you're painting? Well, sometimes, this is Jane, uh, sometimes it is what that person is about maybe or where they are or what they're interested in and again you can you can capture the essence of a person without props you know but it's important to kind of think about what you're going to do in the background i believe before you really kind of get started and when you structure the painting think about what colors are going to be on the right and the left and you know because that helps dictate what you do to that edge Sometimes I stick stuff in there, and I'm sure the other two can speak in the same kind of way. Sometimes we just, you know, focus on that portrait, and then, uh uh-oh, what are we going to do with the background? And sometimes that can lead to problems. (laughs) Nobody else can chime in. Well, all kinds of things can lead to problems in paintings, right? Yeah, sometimes I plan, this is Amy, sometimes I plan my backgrounds around what seems appropriate to the person, and sometimes I work more intuitively. For this show, since it was really about the people and who they are in the community. I did try to focus on having the their surroundings be a little bit more thematic and representational of who they are. Sometimes that's a, a very thought out process and sometimes it's more intuitive. I was going to ask you about this one that you have a beautiful, they're all beautiful, but a beautiful one of, of J.R.T.'s, the soul singer and spoken word artist. And, and he is painted just on a beautiful piece of wood, a beautiful piece of birch, and there's there's nothing else. You just see the wood, the uh, the grain of the wood. I wondered why why you'd chosen that background in that in that instance. I stumbled on that technique by accident a few years ago when I forgot to gesso something. Um, but I think it's sort of a trend now. I mean, in fact, I know it is. And since JRTs is a younger person, much cooler than I am, and that's seems to be um, a millennial trend and kind of a a cooler way to do a background. I thought it seemed appropriate for him. And also, I just, I thought it was beautiful, but I stumbled upon it by accident. Yeah, it's lovely. Well, For the Love of Locals is only on for a couple more weeks, coming down on June the 25th. So if you've been meaning to go and see it, skedaddle over there sooner rather than later. Opening hours for the Boone History and Culture Centre and its Mont Mini Gallery are Wednesday through Saturday from 10am till 5pm. And Audrey Flory, Amy Stevenson, Jane Mudd and Lisa Bartlett, thanks for putting together such a gorgeous tribute to our local art community and for making time to chat today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you, Diana. In a remote one-room cabin in Alaska, a man is jolted awake by a bedraggled stranger barging into his home wearing a wedding gown and veil and silver satin slippers. Outside, a blizzard howls and the world has disappeared into a total whiteout. Inside, the man is huddled asleep in blankets. Who is this human icicle? How does she arrive at a cabin far off the beaten track? Why is she wearing a wedding dress? 
and why is the man hiding from the world? And so starts the Cindy Lou Johnson play Brilliant Traces, about two people reflecting on their escape from society, what their futures might be, what it takes to recover from grief and how vital our need is to connect with others, pertinent and timely after our two pandemic years. Brilliant Traces is the upcoming play at Talking Horse Productions, directed by Talking Horse's founder, Ed Hansen, and performed by just two actors, Adam Bretsky playing Henry Harry, he of the remote cabin, and Natalie Botkins, the ice-encrusted bride, all three of whom are here to chat about their production. Good evening, one and all. Hello, hello. Evening. Thanks for having us. So back in the before times, 2020 was going to be the year of the woman at Talking Horse Productions. And then, of course, it became the year of something else. So, Adam, tell me the history of how Brilliant Traces ended up as a Talking Horse production. Well, you know, I read this script a a couple of years back and the imagery is something that always stuck out to me. Um, Just to kind of give people a little bit of my history, I got divorced in 2015. And in part of that process and figuring out what I wanted to do to heal, one thing I looked at was doing something called Firewatch, where you would literally go out into these remote areas in a uh, cabin or something. And and literally all you do is watch for fires. But something about that seemed really appealing to where I was at the time. And when I read this script a few years back, it really reminded me of that isolation that I felt. Uh, And as we went through two years of the pandemic, I really thought to myself, I bet a lot of people are feeling this way now. And it made it very culturally relevant. And so kind of coming back to my selections for 2022, I revisited this play and I just really couldn't get it out of my mind. Ed, you stepped in to direct this intense no room to hide play between two strangers in a remote Alaskan cabin. What draws you to this play? Well, you know, the first time I read it, I thought it was just kind of a quirky theater vehicle. I I wasn't really sure what to make of it because the characters both are almost surreal in their their approaches to life. But as I would go back and, and reread the play, which I like to do when I'm considering directing something. I like to read it multiple times before I decide. I could really see the wounds that both of these characters have and the fact that in the course of the play, they almost take turns trying to console the other one or trying to to help the other one to heal. I just found it to be kind of a fascinating story and a play that was really kind of unlike anything I'd ever read before. And uh, I'm very fond of small cast shows. Uh, those those two-person plays, uh, you get to know the characters so very well. The, the playwright in this one, she takes her time introducing little bits of information about each of the characters. As a matter of fact, there's a major reveal <laughs> right at like the last three pages of the play. So it's just a really well-crafted play. I know Adam was complaining last night sometimes she gets a little carried away with saying the same thing so many times and in lots of different ways it makes it harder to memorize but she's she's pacing herself so that she doesn't reveal too quickly what the story the real story is on both of these characters 
Natalie, you have an absolutely huge opening monologue that goes on for the best part of three pages. And in fact, your whole role makes my brain ache as you have so many (laughs) emotional ups and downs and energy swings. Was this a role that you had to be talked into or one that you've been dying to do for ages? Um, actually, no, I read the script for this show and I immediately was like, I would love to tackle this challenge. <laughs> um, I read that opening monologue and it just really like clicked with my brain of like, there has to be some way that I can make this relatable to people because she's all over the place and, and frozen solid from being in a snowstorm and saying things that don't make sense. And I was really excited to have the opportunity to bring that to life. Tell us a little bit about your character, Rosanna, without giving too much away, but how much of of you is in her? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think that I put a lot of myself into her where I can. She's very high strung and has a lot of energy. And I'm a person with a lot of natural energy. So I definitely lean on that in those moments. And what do we know about her? At the beginning, very little. She's been driving for days and days and out in a snowstorm walking for over an hour and is frozen and is just trying to find some escape from the cold. Okay, we'll leave it at that then, without giving too much away. And Adam, <laughs> Adam, without giving away any spoilers, obs again on your character, tell us a little bit about Henry Harry and what, you, well, I guess you kind of answered that, what you drew on to make him real to you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Henry is a man that's that's been through some tragedy and how we all adapt to living life after tragedy is is different. And I think Henry has adapted to that by isolating himself to decide that if if he removed himself from the chaos of people that he could have a greater control over his life. And so he's gone to great lengths to put himself at a place where he's very unlikely to run into people that will affect his life in any other way other than what he has planned. Ed, a director's job is to put together the imaginative and intellectual shell in which the action of a play takes place. You're creating the world that we, the audience, will observe and hopefully be moved by. And when you only have two actors helping you to do that, there's a lot of suspended reality that you are all carrying. But tell me, what traces of Ed Hansen, the director, will we see in this production? Hmm, boy, that's that's a good one. Um, well, one of the things we've been working with, and I suppose that I'm driving the mule train on this, is that there are some scenes where there is very in-depth conversation between the two. Uh, and in those scenes, I let the, the pacing sort of be a natural thing, not worrying about whether they're going too fast or too slow, but just making sure that they're conveying what it is that each character is is trying to say. There are other scenes where the casual conversation kind of takes over, or maybe it's a scene with a lot of repetition where somebody's trying to drive a point and so they they say the same thing several times. And so what I'm trying to do with those scenes is to change the tempo of the speech itself with both characters to kind of speed through those scenes, much like you would do if you were having an argument with somebody and you keep repeating the same point, Mm. you tend to get faster 
because of the urgency of trying to convey what it is that you're trying to say. There are several places in the script where one is almost doing a monologue, but they're occasionally interrupted with a no or I see or <laughs> such such comments like that. And so we're we're trying to play with the tempo in those those scenes too, so that it becomes more like a monologue. Looking for places where the dialogue needs to overlap a little bit with the, the, a sense of urgency with both characters to make their points. So I think that that's probably what I'm um, putting more of my stamp on than anything is is to make sure that the the dialogue um, flows, but not always at the same pace and with the same urgency. Yeah, and I'll say that Ed is very much an actor's director. He has a great analysis of the script, and as he's watching, he'll ask Natalie and I questions about, you know, well, why did you say something that way? And it's not a way of telling us you should do this differently or you should do it my way, but really just putting it in a place where we have a reason to go back and maybe try something different to see if we can gain another emotional level from it. Adam, the the play was written 33 years ago, and mm-hmm. our sensibilities have changed a lot since then, especially over the past five or six years. And there are definitely moments in the play which feel a little socially unacceptable, such as how <laughs> when she collapses in his living room, he undresses her and puts her to bed. He decides to kiss her without really asking her. There were moments in the play which 10 or even five years ago I would not have blinked at, and now I think, ooh... <laughs> What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, there I've I had those same thoughts. There's a lot of these moments where it's like, well, gosh, what would you do? I mean, honestly, it's I think the thing that sticks out the most to me is if somebody crashed at your doorstep right now, the very first thing you would do is pick up your cell phone and call somebody. <laughs> but of course, 30 years ago we didn't have that ability. Um I think when you really invest in the characters and you start learning their stories and how they tick, you realize that some of these things that happen, just like the elements that you describe, they're not done out of any sinister mentality. They're they're really done out of, well, I have to help. I'm curious, Natalie, to what your thoughts are on this, and especially as a female actor, how you see the role of intimacy coaches in contemporary theatre staging and where your comfort levels are. I think there are a lot of moments in this play where, yeah, I think if this were happening now and if I were in a room with this man alone and he made some sort of physical advance towards me, I absolutely would call the police or call for help But, you know, like this, it was written longer ago. I don't know. Could I speak to that real quick, too? Sure, Ed. So uh, we've actually, in a lot of these scenes, we've taken time to to kind of talk about things and um, what are you comfortable doing and how best to approach this so that no one's comfort level is being disturbed. So because both of these characters are, are somewhat emotionally damaged people, I feel like that's kind of how we're approaching um, for instance, when, when Henry Harry starts kissing on her ear at one point, that it's not done out of desire. It's done out of a, a reaction of caring. And when she says, what are you doing? He immediately stops. And so it's not that he's preying on her at all. It's simply that he is letting down his guard enough and feeling a need to nurture. And that's where all of that starts. 
And then there's a, a second scene where they're arguing and all of a sudden he, <laughs> he grabs her and kisses her. And again, it's, a, it's an emotional buildup. It's not a romantic thing. And it's not a power struggle thing. So I think when you see how it's staged, it's going to make a little bit more sense from the, the standpoint of uh, we're working with two emotionally damaged people and they're in an isolated environment together. It must be ever more difficult as directors and actors and artistic directors when you're choosing plays to take into account the sensitivity of the age we live in and the fact that we can't just not do plays that were written 30, 100, 200 years ago. Right. They're still relevant, but how do you get around that? Adam, have you come across that before and what do you do? Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you, I think the hardest thing for a lot of community theaters is that popular musicals that high schools have done for ages are, as you say, they're no longer really culturally relevant and no longer really acceptable. I think where you have to look at everything is in the lens of the characters that are there. Hmm. And as Ed was just speaking to, I think the actions that happen in these play, it's easy to read that with the 2022 lens and say, oh my gosh, this this would never be acceptable now. But when you actually look at the story that's being told and the characterization of, of each person, there's a reason for that momentum and that shift. And as Ed mentions, there's never this idea of Henry praying on Rosanna that's that's collapsed there. But for instance, when he undresses her from her wedding gown and cleans her, it is because she has just said that she is filthy and exhausted and in terrible pain. And so it's not a, a sexual thing. It is a, I have to help my fellow human being thing. Hmm. I'm going to give the last words to Natalie and Adam. You are both, I find you both very compelling actors who I always enjoy watching on the stage. Adam, tell us something that you love about working opposite Natalie. Oh my gosh. Well, that's a wonderful question. And this is my first time working at opposite Natalie. And I, I just have to say, I have been completely enamored with her performance watching how she comes prepared to rehearsals and just finds different things in these walls of text. And as you mentioned, takes a 30-year-old script and makes me feel like it was written for this day and age. It's absolutely incredible. And it's been a long time since I have been in a show and felt like I've really had to work to keep up. And so I have felt that way throughout this entire process. And Natalie, what makes working with Adam such a special experience? Well, he is an excellent scene partner. He's very easy to just connect with when we're working on things. Um, it was really easy for me to stop looking at my book because he was just there and always like emotionally ready to build off of whatever I give him. And then he is ready to give me things that I can build off of. And I feel like we've found this really good give and take in all of our work together. Well, let's do a little, a very short scene. This is, there are no acts in this play. It is a one act straight through play. But let's take a little scene where Rosanna is telling Henry a little bit about what her name is and who she is. So Rosanna, you, uh, sorry, Natalie, <laughs> you start. All right. 
My name's Rosanna Deleuze. Henry Harry. What? I'm Henry Harry. Oh. You've been very kind. I I mean, thank you for... You were almost frozen to death. I didn't do anything you wouldn't do for a sick dog. Oh. Someone comes banging into your home, you don't have to be any particular kind of person to feed them. No, I wasn't implying You'd have to be pretty far gone if you didn't even feed them. That's true. I was just making an observation. I mean, it just crossed my mind that... Any one human being of this earth would feed another if he was sitting right in front of him and so hungry he couldn't even think straight. I can think straight. I thought we had established that I was feeling a little disoriented, like any normal human being would after traveling for many, many days and then been sleeping for two. I can think very straight. Yes. Well, I guess I'd better go see about my car. Great. The Cindy Lou Johnson play Brilliant Traces opens at Talking Horse Productions on Friday, June the 17th and runs for two weekends, closing with a 2 p.m. matinee performance on Sunday, June the 26th. To find out more, visit TalkingHorseProductions.org and Ed Hansen, Natalie Botkins and Adam Bretsky. Thank you so much for giving us a peek behind the curtain and taking time to chat. Thank you so much, Thank Diana. You, Diana. I often wonder when, back in 1961, the people of Arrow Rock thought, I know, let's organise theatre performances in our old church, whether they could possibly have foreseen the phenomenal success that would follow. In those days, as the theatre's first artistic director, Henry Swanson, wrote, living conditions were terrible. Half the town was in shantytown shape. Our water came from the Santa Fe Spring in gallon jugs with bugs swimming in the water. Kansas City Power and Light had to rewire the town from the highway just to get 100 ampere service to the theatre. Could those early founders possibly have imagined that one day their historic church would become a 416-seat auditorium, attracting professional actors from across the country performing in Broadway quality productions with annual audiences of 33,000 people from around the state and beyond? And of course, being a Brit, I always imagine the person at the back of the room quietly muttering, it'll never work, it'll never work. I do love American optimism. You do it so much better than your cousins across the pond. And one of the people who has been a significant factor in the success of the theatre over the past two decades is Quinn Gresham, who, as luck would have it, is my guest this evening. Such a delight having your august company back on the show once more, Quinn. It is always a pleasure to visit with you. And I have learned in your introduction that I am perhaps a Brit by nature. (laughs) Which is my first question. I was going to say, had you been there in those early meetings, which was a long time before your birth, I realized that. But had you been there, would you have been on the gung-ho side of the table or rolling your eyes at the back of the room and singing the it'll never work ditty? It's hard to imagine that moment where a couple of couples in town, uh, the Argybrights and the Lawrences, decided that they would buy an old church for the cost of the lumber uh, that they were about to tear down without really being theater folk themselves and uh, just started reaching out to see who might be in charge of the first season at the Lyceum Theater. There's very little about that if it were occurring today, that I think anybody would get behind. Um, <laughs> but it's uh, the, the 60s were a very different time. And uh, there, there was, I believe, uh, more of a capacity to dream beyond the rational, which I guess as any dream should, and just jump off the cliff and get this thing started. There was nothing practical about that choice. It was just a real 
passion, love, and desire, and that's where we were born. It is an incredible story, the last 60 years, which I know we could spend at least three hours talking about, but... We are, in fact, here to talk about the present and the future of your summer season, the first show of which just ended. So we have five shows to cover in 12 minutes. So let's start in New Jersey with your second show of the summer season, where we meet up with Frankie Castelluccio, Tommy DeVito, Bob Gaudio and Nick Masso, who, of course, became Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. The musical Jersey Boys ran for 12 years on Broadway and it's a documentary-style jukebox musical divided into, no surprise, four seasons. Tell us about those seasons, Quinn. Well, it's really interesting because it is sort of a different kind of fairy tale, a, a rags-to-riches sort of story about uh, Frankie Valli and, uh, and the Four Seasons and the music that they created that was a completely unique sound in the musical fabric of the 1960s and into the 1970s. It is a a real challenge to put that show together in terms of uh, recreating that particular sound. And we're very fortunate to have a a gentleman named Michael Ingersoll directing the production. Michael uh, is the creator and has been involved in a show called Under the Street Lamp, which has appeared several times at the Lyceum Theater. He has a wealth of knowledge about uh, Jersey Boys and has put together a remarkable cast. I was able to listen to uh, the Four Seasons uh, singing through some of their songs actually moments ago, and they sound fantastic. And what for me, what makes Jersey Boys a unique beast among the jukebox musicals is that the story is incredibly well told. It is told in a theatrical way, but also in a very sincere, honest, and heartfelt way as well. So yes, you get to hear all of those great songs, but I think you also get to understand the character of the Four Seasons, winter, spring, summer, and fall uh, as they travel through good times and difficult times. So just as an aside, so you've got you've got rehearsals going on and you've got a show on the stage. I mean, is it a one week crossover between shows usually? It's about that. Yes. Uh, So we started uh, rehearsals for Jersey Boys the Sunday after Shrek opened on a Thursday. So we we move from one right into the other uh, pretty quickly. And there are shared cast members in the shows. Mm. And so to work at the Lyceum and to do double duty or sometimes triple duty is an experience that uh, is uh, one certain certainly to be remembered. It's a tremendous (laughs) amount of work, but we're very fortunate to have incredibly diligent professional artists working for us that are able to do all of those things at the same time, performing as a fairy tale character during the day and rehearsing in the evening in the cast of Jersey Boys. So then for the summer's third show, you stay in the world of music, though this one a little more fictional, but inspired by the true story of Diana Ross and the Supremes. Tell us about the Dream Girls and how the musical follows the story of the Supremes. Well, it's interesting because we have the Jersey Boys also in the same time period and then Dreamgirls, which, as you say, is a fictionalized version of the Supremes. It is very close to the reality of Diana Ross and the Supremes, but fictionalized enough that the any licenses taken are not uh, offensive to anyone. Dreamgirls is 
hands down, one of my all-time favorite musicals. It is nearly an opera. Most of it is sung through, although there are some occasional book scenes throughout. And the music of the show is so powerful, so moving, so human. And there are moments within it where that music drives into me more deeply than just about any other musical I've ever seen. And uh, we're very excited to have Deidre Goodwin, who many people may know uh, from her appearance in uh, the film of Chicago and many other terrific performances on Broadway. She really is a legend in the dance world and we're so happy that she's joined us to direct and choreograph a terrific cast to make one of my all-time favorite musicals come to life. Moving on, Act 4 of the Lyceum's summer season. We're going to hop forward from the 60s to the 80s and from music to murder mystery with the comedy Clue, which is adapted from the screenplay, which in turn was adapted from the board game and features, and I have to quote the New York Times here, they gave a great rundown, a handsy shrink, Professor Plum, a vivacious madam, Miss Scarlet, a gay Republican, Mr. Green, a dim-witted colonel, a multiple divorcee, Mrs. White, and a senator's wife with a drinking problem, Mrs. Peacock. It's a pretty good rundown. It is. What do you love most about this play? I grew up seeing the film Clue in the movie theaters. I still remember going to see it. And it when when the, the film was released, it was released with different endings depending on where you saw it. When I saw it, I, I remember this very clearly, Mrs. Peacock was the killer. But that would not have been the case if I'd seen it in a different theater. The, the performances in that film are iconic in my mind between, uh, gosh, Martin Mull, Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Leslie Ann Warren, Christopher Lloyd. Every single one of them are just comedy legends. And there, there has been a previous adaptation of Clue. There's a musical version of it, which for me was, you know, more focused on the board game and largely disregarded the film version, which was so sewn into my uh, childhood memories. And when Clue, the film, was adapted into a stage version, I was over the moon. And this is actually the Missouri professional premiere of it. It is fairly new. And everything that you remember from the film will be there, of course. But also new things, because it is an adaptation of a film. Uh, Things have to change in order to make them work on stage. But one thing that doesn't change, and this is a really exciting prospect, is that Mr. Body's mansion and all of its various rooms where murders will likely take place, have to be represented on stage. And our scenic designer, Ryan Zerngable, has built a wonderful, wonderful landscape for all of these uh, all of these events to play out. But what I think ultimately is the most fun thing about Clue is that, yes, it's a murder mystery. Yes, there are multiple crimes to solve. But it also plays in a lot of ways like a French farce. So it, it is going to be incredibly funny in addition to uh, the exciting whodunit element. And I won't reveal any more about it. <laughs> And from a remote mansion, we're off to my neck of the woods, globally speaking at least, Sherwood Forest for Ken Ludwig's The Adventures of Robin Hood and a dose of comedy thrills, romance, greed and inhumanity, which sounds rather like an episode of The Bachelor. (laughs) I have to say that plays featuring American actors doing English accents always makes me slightly anxious, but I am sure that on the Lyceum stage, I should have no fear that I will be anything other than than convincingly transported to my homeland. We have discussed this before, and it is always a risk uh, when you have a true Brit in the audience listening to 
Americans doing their best UK dialects. We have a tremendous company of actors put together for the show, uh, many of whom I, actually all of them, I believe, I have uh, worked with in British plays. So uh, no worries there. I think you can come to the theater uh, comforted that that will not be something that will irritate you. In addition to uh, the the Britishness of it, it is also a mad-capped romance adventure. And you can't have Robin Hood on stage without arrows flying across the stage, broadsword fights, quarterstaff fights. So really, there will be something for everyone in this very theatrically told version of that great legend. And by now, it is the end of September, and you're going to serenade us into the fall with a night of Rodgers and Hammerstein music featuring 30 hit songs from 11 of their musicals. And after that final note of the season, you get a couple of months to vacuum the dressing rooms before it's Christmas. But we'll talk about that later in the year. So that's it at the end of the season. Any final last word on on the Rodgers and Hammerstein show? It is some of the greatest music ever written. And uh, to include all of it in one evening of theater, I think is just going to be a real delight for our audiences. You know, we uh, the early part of the season features more contemporary musicals. And we really wanted something that capitalized on the golden age of musicals. And uh, A Grand Night for Singing was the perfect choice. Well, if my mother were alive, she would be there with bells on. She loved <laughs> Rodgers and Hammerstein's musicals. To peruse the full schedule and details for each show, head to lyceumtheatre.org and Queen Gresham may the stage rise up to meet you theatrical enchantment prevail and children who kick the back of people's seats be devoured by dragons <laughs> thank you as always for your eloquence and time bless you for those wishes <laughs> I know absolutely nothing about Dungeons and Dragons. I am terrible at coming up with Halloween costumes, let alone inhabiting the many worlds of cosplay or Comic-Cons. So I am guessing that when playwright Kui Gwen wrote a dramatic comedy romp into a world of fantasy role-playing games with murderous fairies and succubi, a leather-clad dominatrix she-devil and an ogre who has given up menacing to become a couch potato addicted to 1990s television, shows, he was definitely not imagining people like me in the audience. But even if you don't know what a Tiamat is or the rules on the use of magic in Dungeons and Dragons, the play She Kills Monsters is still a hilarious and sweet story of friendship, learning about your family through their dreams and aspirations, dealing with loss and the acceptance of people for who they are. Oh, and fighting and death. There is a lot of fighting and dying though sometimes the dying is only temporary. She Kills Monsters opens at Maplewood Barn tonight, and here to tell us more is its director, Chris Bowling, and actor Ada Chapman, a.k.a. Chuck, our guide to the world of Newlandia and our search for the lost soul of Athens, Ohio. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Chris and Ada. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Chris, someone described the play as an homage to the geek and warrior within us all. How much has Dungeons and Dragons been part of your life and how much warrior and geek are you? Well, um, let's see. I have been personally, I've been playing the game for almost as long as it has existed. My history with it goes back more than 40 years. Wow. Yeah, I started playing um, at recess in elementary school and uh, it's been in one way or another a part of my life ever since. And on the warrior and geek scale, where are you? Geek pretty high. I don't know about warrior. <laughs> Ada, on the spectrum of warrior and geek, what percentage are you of each of those? Ooh, I'm 
with Chris on the the warrior thing, not too sure there, but I'd say pretty geeky. Scale one to ten, <laughs> solid seven and a half. So give us a synopsis of the play, Chris. Okay, well, all right, this is my quick synopsis, is that a uh, young woman who whose family was killed in a car accident, her parents and younger sister, she's cleaning out her house and she discovers this Dungeons and Dragons adventure that her younger sister wrote. So she takes it to a local game store staffed by Chuck, who was played by Ada, and asks him to explain what this is about and, and run her through this adventure so she can get an idea of what this thing was that her sister was so interested in. And within this adventure, her sister's character appears in this adventure. And so she interacts with, in a way, a proxy or avatar of her sister. And through that really um, gets a lot of closure with the loss that happened. And there's kind of a dual world going on. So sometimes we're in the real world where Agnes is talking to her colleagues or people in her real life, her boyfriend, but then somehow they also morph into the into the fantasy world too, right? So there's kind of this dual level. Exactly, exactly. And, and I've kind of staged it that way too to make it like there's a pretty clear demarcation between the real world and the, uh, and the world of the fantasy game, although in some places it gets kind of blurred and uh, mixed together. Well, I want to come back to the staging in a little while, but Ada, you play Chuck, who guides the Dungeons and Dragons novice, Agnes, as well as the audience. You help us through Agnes's quest to find the lost soul of Athens. So tell me in what way this play speaks to your heart. Really, I'd say it's this idea of connection between Agnes and all of Tilly's friends, and those are two main characters. And that's really where I feel sort of a connection is I've always struggled to connect with other people and having this bridge, creating this bridge between her and her sister's friends, I'd say in some way, I'm able to tie it back to my own life. I'm able to pull from that. So Chris, tell us a little bit about some of the main characters we meet in the play. Well, okay, so the main character, the uh, center of it all is Agnes, who is described as just perfectly average in every way. She's uh, in her mid-20s, she's a school teacher, and um, seems more or less stuck in a kind of mundane rut in her life. Then, let's see, another, uh, well, then, of course, there's Tilly, or Tilius, um, which is her, the character that her sister created for this adventure, but you see a lot of um, stuff coming through that clearly is, is meant to represent the person, not the uh, character. It's re- meant to represent uh, Tilly as a person, not the character that she plays within the game. Uh, and then, of course, there's Chuck, who is, as you said, Agnes's guide. Then uh, they, they've got an adventuring party of um, there's Lilith, who's a very bold and brash she-devil. Calliope, who is a uh, elven... Um, I'm not sure what class she would be in the Dungeons and Dragons system, but probably a ranger or something. She's like their their woodland guide, and she's very unemotional and uh, rather Spock-like, actually. <laughs> and then there's Orcus, who is um, the, you also mentioned, is the uh, former head of the underworld who's now just wants to sit around and eat cheese whiz and watch TV. <laughs> And then all of them are actually representing real people in real life, too, who by the end of the play, you get to meet them as well. But uh, really, I think that Chuck is really the unsung hero of this thing, because 
if you looked at this in reality, it would be Chuck and, and Agnes are sitting at a table and they're talking. So Chuck is the one who is breathing life into all of these characters. He's interpreting them and he is making them come alive. And I think he does just an amazing job and also uh, displays incredible empathy for um, someone his age and really like understands, I think, on a deeply intuitive level what it is that Agnes is really looking for and kind of helps her find that. We should definitely talk about the fighting as there is a lot of it. The playwright actually worked as a fight director when he first went to New York and taught stage combat at Columbia University. So no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when there's a stage instruction that reads, and in the greatest fight ever to be seen on a theatrical stage. So Chris, the master of local stage combat, Adam Bretzky, is busy on another stage right now. So talk to me about choreographing fighting and what the challenges are. So actually, um, Adam did have a hand in it, although he was mostly assisting Dana Baki, who is also an incredibly accomplished fight choreographer. So she did, I would say, the majority of, of the choreography here. She and Adam worked together on it. I had a small amount of input into the the final climactic battle um, with Tiamat, the five-headed dragon. But yeah, really, Dana is the hero of of all things fight-oriented. And there is a degree of goriness to some of the death scenes in the play. There's some graphically ripping out of a throat, an explosion of body parts, dismembering, and there are kicks to the head, multiple stabbings. And beneath it all is the motto of the playwright that whatever it has... It has to be awesome. So, Chris, take us behind the scenes of the special effects and your quest for awesomeness. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, we are limited to what, you know, what we can accomplish on a community theater budget. um, But we're always centering that with it has to look great. It has to look fantastic. So a lot of our special effects are still in progress, um, working some of those out. So uh, I want it to be entertaining and also not messy or create any kind of uh, danger situation. <laughs> like, we're not going to have big pools of blood on the stage. <laughs> so you were talking earlier about how you make it as obvious as you can that now we're in the real world, now we're in the fantasy world. What? How have you done that with lighting? What have been your tricks on that? So the way I've got it is the stage consists of some platforms that can enter and leave the stage area. And those represent the real world settings and then when they're off stage, they get swapped around to be something else, and then they come back. But yeah, definitely the the imaginary world definitely dominates the stage, and the real world is almost a is almost seen as an intrusion into that fantasy state. Ada, there are a number of themes running alongside the comedy and the fighting things that many high schoolers and young people deal with at some point. Talk to me about some of those themes and whether as young cast members you have found catharsis in the play well i would say again some of the biggest themes are like connection and the idea of being understood agnes never understood tilly until she started participating in dnd and i think for a lot of young people especially today it's this constant struggle to find who you are what is your identity so that idea of discovering yourself, understanding yourself, but also helping other people to understand you. I think that's something that a lot of young people, especially a lot of us in the cast, tend to relate to. 
Chris, I feel like we should definitely talk about costumes. <laughs> as if you are following the script closely, there are some pretty saucy outfits. As Agnes says, seriously, does no one here like wearing all their clothes? Plus, you have a Conan the Barbarian and all manner of monsters. Talk to me about the costume design. Who have you been working with on that? So I've been lucky enough to have Sarah Jost and Jolene Metzen as the head costumers. Also, Dana who is our fight choreographer, has also lent a lot of uh, help to that, too. The three of them are are themselves cosplayers, and so they've got just a perfect eye for this sort of thing, and they, they have a lot of resources to find all the... Uh, the uh, fun accessories and they, they just use a lot of imagination in uh, in realizing those things and again I sometimes feel that the playwright really wanted to write a movie script and not a play script because he seems totally unconcerned with mundane things as like actually needing time to change costumes <laughs> or uh, or you know the the actual physical execution of all of these things so it's a constant balancing act between again you know you get you want to get out there and get what what's going to uh, convey what this monster is but also you know you're limited by budget of course but also like how much time do you actually have to change into you know go from being an orc to a bugbear two pages later <laughs> ada what are some of your favorite moments in the play it's so hard to just choose one I would say there's a scene where Chuck meets Miles, Agnes's boyfriend, and there's this complete misunderstanding on uh, the fact that they're just playing D&D. Of course, boyfriend showing up at the house, there's some other guy there, there's going to be some confusion, and Chuck does not clear it up well. It's one of the only scenes I get to fight in. (laughs) (laughs) That is a great scene. They are definitely talking at cross purposes the whole time. Chris, last question. Obviously, you want audiences to leave the play having laughed a lot and had fun with the characters. But what conversations do you hope people have in the car going home? Well, one, I just hope that they walk out of the theater saying, that was awesome. (laughs) So that's, of course, the number one thing. But yeah, I do think I, I want them to think about people that feel neglected, people that feel left out, people that feel excluded, and just to have a deeper sense of empathy and understanding for everyone, or people who are in those groups to feel, you know, a certain sense of connection and identity and say, oh, yeah, look, I am seen, you know, I understand this, I relate to this. Also, it's just the whole aspect of Agnes going through this mourning and acceptance is just incredibly moving. I have yet to not cry at the end of this show and we've you know i've seen it in rehearsal over and over and over again and it gets me every time well she kills monsters opens at maplewood barn theater tonight june the 16th and runs for two weekends closing on sunday the 26th of june showtime is 8 p.m and remember that as maplewood barn is an outdoor theater bring plenty of bug spray along with your blanket or camping chair and a picnic you can find out more and see the full cast list at maplewoodbarn.com. And Chris Bowling and Ada Chapman, thanks for taking us behind the scenes. Thank you. Thank you. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. (laughs) 
Thank you to my guests, director Chris Bowling and actor Ada Chapman from Maplewood Barn, artists Jane Mudd, Amy Stevenson, Lisa Bartlett and curator Audrey Flory from the Boone History and Culture Centre, director Ed Hansen and actors Adam Bretsky and Natalie Botkins from Talking Horse Productions and from the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock, producing artistic director Quinn Gresham. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peaks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!